I'm Jason Mitchell, co-head of Responsible Investment at Man Group. You're listening to A Sustainable Future, a podcast about what we're doing today to build a more sustainable world tomorrow. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast, and I hope everyone is staying safe and well. There's a particular strain of cynicism and defeatism, even fatalism, that's beginning to germinate. It may well be a byproduct of the IPCC's Code Red report, or the recent greenwashing probes, or the criticism over the cost of decarbonization, or even the growing suspicions about the underlying credibility of net zero itself. But let's face it, cynicism is a pretty hollow construct. Sure, it may offer protection against disappointment, against wanting more than climate efforts are ever likely to deliver. But cynicism doesn't solve problems, it doesn't change behaviors, and it's not going to galvanize collective climate action. Perhaps that's why this episode resonates so much with me. Because it's not just refreshing, it's also a necessary counterpoint to all this cynicism on several measures. First, it weighs up the expectations going into COP26. And yeah, there's a lot of heavy lifting to do. But there's also a chance we come out with a much clearer view of 2030 national commitments and the spillover implications for decarbonizing industries. Second, it considers the success of the net zero movement relative to earlier pre-Paris Accord climate efforts, and in my mind, there's no doubt of its benefits. And third, it's a critical but constructive view about the UK's own progress towards net zero. Which is why I'm incredibly grateful to interview Chris Stark on all of this. Chris is Chief Executive of the Climate Change Committee and previously Director of Energy and Climate Change in the Scottish Government, where he led the development of Scotland's approach to emissions reduction and the energy system transition. The Climate Change Committee, which was established under the UK's Climate Change Act in 2008, is an independent statutory body that advises both the UK and devolved governments on emissions targets and on progress in reducing greenhouse gas emissions and adapting to the impacts of climate change. Welcome to the podcast, Chris Stark. It's great to have you here and thanks so much for taking the time today. Hi, Jason. Thanks so much for having me. Perfect. Look, so we have a lot of great stuff to talk about today. Um, I'd like to start out with something a little on the unconventional side, because you've talked a lot about not being a big fan of apocalyptic climate scenarios. In fact, you're quoted as saying that whatever lies ahead, we will adapt to it. And I, just to start off on this note, I'm, I'm wondering to what extent does the latest IPCC Code Red report recalibrate your optimism, if it does, around our ability to problem solve this, either technologically or from a policy perspective? Mm, well, I think that <laughs> probably uh, refers to an interview I gave last year where I was, I was making a a point that I think is often forgotten, that whatever happens, we are going to have to adapt to it. And it's not actually a very positive one. Uh, we're not going to have any choice. <laughs> so it's not a, not, a, not a particularly optimistic message there. But um, I, I mean, I, I, am, I, I stand by what I said. I'm, I'm not a big fan of apocalyptic climate scenarios because I feel a, a, there is a lot of effort put into those climate scenarios to um, try and paint a picture of a, a world that I don't think we will reach. But I am very, very uh, worried about where we're heading. Uh, and I am very, very uh, worried about what's in that latest IPCC report, Code Red, as, as uh, it was reported widely, uh, you know, to contain. 
And I think, it's, you know, we've got to think about it in those terms. There's a lot of bad news in that report, I'm afraid. Um, we've got CO2 levels higher than they've been for two or three million years on this planet. The world is warmer than it's been for at least 125,000 years. And it is unequivocally down to what we are doing, human beings, on this planet, in particular with our use of fossil fuels. There are some unprecedented things happening. And that's, of course, leading to these unprecedented changes in the climate, the weather extremes we're seeing, the heat waves, the, the, the rainfall, the droughts. All of that is contained very cogently and well presented in the IPCC report. And they work very hard to demonstrate that it is directly linked, of course, to the emissions of greenhouse gases. So I think there's lots to be concerned about there. And probably the most obvious kind of summation of that is that I'm afraid we are going to uh, breach that Paris threshold of one and a half degrees, or at least meet it, one and a half degrees centigrade, probably in the 2030s. The only question is whether we hold it to one and a half or cross that threshold later in the century. But the, I am an optimist, uh, at least I'm positive in my outlook. And I think there's also in the report quite a lot to hang your hat on if you have that outlook. Um, if you really want to see us tackle this thing, then it's, it's a good report to read. Um, and for me, it's the certainty that comes with that analysis that, that, that makes me feel that way about it. It's now very certain, for example, that this goal of net zero carbon dioxide, net zero CO2, is going to halt further warming. It's also very certain that methane reductions in the near term are going to slow the very rapid warming that we've seen recently. So that's positive. It means that we know what to do. We've also narrowed the range of possible outcomes right down as well in this in this most recent report. So it looks now very much like the goal of net zero CO2 by 2050 globally is the one that we have to aim for if we want to keep one and a half degrees on, on the table. So from my perspective, and to be more optimistic about this for a second, I am I am. I suppose I am I'm impressed by how clear it is what 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 now must be done. And I am also I bring into this the kind of technical view that that would my job brings. I know we can do this. I know that we can achieve that that goal of, of net zero by mid century. And I also know that it's important that, that, that countries like the UK lead the way on that. So I think there is quite a lot in that to um to point towards if you're if you're of an optimistic mindset. That's a really good response. I, I guess to think about that in the context of COP26, what are your expectations around it? It just seems like, it seems like expectations are running incredibly high. Even Secretary General Antonio Guterres is calling 2021 a, effectively a make or break year. What should we make of the fact that half of the world's nations chose not to submit updated climate plans into COP26? Well, it's not good that that has happened. Yeah, no. <laughs> it's important to say. But um, in terms of what happens at COP26, again, I'm, I'm going to strike a more optimistic note on, on all of that. I mean, the first thing to say is I'm in Glasgow right now. I'm speaking to you from very sunny Glasgow, which happens to be where I live, where I grew up. So I, I can tell you confidently that we will we'll host a, a good summit. So the conditions, I think, will be right for, for, for something to happen. I, and I very much hope that the kind of global ambition on climate will come into the kind of uh, you know, the kind of pathways that we need to be following to, to keep the Paris Agreement targets on the table. I think the most important thing to say about COP26 is I think it's going to feel different from previous COPs because, as you say, expectations are higher than ever. But that's been driven by, I think, a general recognition around the world that climate change is now with us. It's not something that's kind of for the future any longer, which is always always makes it more difficult to act on it if you feel it's something for the next generation. Well, it's not for the next generation. It never was, but... I think people really are seeing the impact of climate change happening uh, and are understanding crucially that that is connected with uh, the greenhouse gas emissions that are 
causing the planet to warm. So for that reason and that reason only, it's a big moment for the COP. But there are a set of other reasons why the COP is uh, a big moment as well. The UN really needs this thing to work. This is the first demonstration of multilateralism in a world that has not been very multilateral uh, in, in recent pandemic year. Uh, and um, I think the UN will pull out the stops to make that work. And the UK as the host needs to make it work as well, because this is our first demonstration that we can still host this global discussion post-Brexit. So there's all sorts of um, political reasons that, it, that it, it needs to happen. And maybe more important than all of that, uh, I think COP26 is a moment to demonstrate that things are now moving that on the climate issues themselves. It's quite, I mean, net zero is going to be something that we're going to be talking a lot about, I'm sure, in COP26. But it's quite interesting. I mean, we talk, we talk about net zero all the time now. We weren't talking, that wasn't a term that anyone recognised just a few years ago. The fact that 80% or thereabouts of global GDP is now under a net zero target is not bad progress in six years since the Paris Agreement. So I'm sure that will be a factor. Yes, the NDCs so far have not yet been brought into view. So we need those near-term commitments alongside the net zero commitments by mid-century. But I have a hope that those will be there too, potentially including China's. And what's driving that, of course, is the, the, the fact that we are now understanding more and more about the, how the key commitments that would drive the, those near-term reductions can be achieved. Phase up coal, the electric vehicles transition, what we're doing in industry, alongside all of the, the important stuff on finance flows, and also adaptation, we shouldn't, we shouldn't miss that. But all of that is, I think, being helped by the fact that the corporate commitments are there now um, to, to help along the way with the governmental commitments. So I think it's important to have that context in mind because you can go into this forgetting that we have actually in recent years started to really, I think, progress and to, to raise the ambition in the way that we need to. Now we need to deliver against that. Hmm. Yeah, I want to definitely come back to the net zero element. Uh, but I'm just wondering... One of the roles of host is to pressure countries into issuing raised climate action plans. I'm, I'm wondering if you had to rate the UK's ability to do that over the past year, um, how would you rate it? Well, it's hard for me to answer that question. I, I, I kind of, I, I'm, I'm not here to kind of defend mm. the UK's interests globally, but it does appear that in, in, in the last 12 months or so that something has shifted and I think it's partly because the UK has got to grips with the role of president for the COP. It's partly because in Alok Sharma, we now have someone who I think now genuinely understands the issues and is, is motoring on them. But I think it's also because of the US. So you can see the, the kind of interest of the Biden administration, especially with John Kerry's leadership on these issues, has really changed the game. And it has brought to the table a set of participants that perhaps weren't there before, partly because of you know, the geopolitical interest in it, but partly also, I think, because of the general understanding now of the economics of this transition and the fact that I think most global economies will need to be on board with this transition to zero carbon if they want to thrive. So it feels like uh, things have picked up of late and that the UK's ability to, to host and to, and to encourage tougher action is, is improving. I, I really hope it continues to do so because over the course of the next few weeks, uh, you know, we're, we, we need to make sure that we deliver on this. Um, we, by the time we get to COP, I think there's still room for the new NDCs in the COP, but we need to be moving on to the, you know, I think the more interesting and challenging questions of how you actually deliver these emissions reductions and commitments, which I think is where the real uh, interesting stuff lies. And again, where I think we'll need UK leadership, but I think things are moving. One of the major sticking points that I'm aware of is that we've got this Article 6 problem from the Paris Agreement related to carbon markets. And it 
represents basically the last piece of the Paris Accord that needs to be resolved. I remember this being a big sticking point for the last two COPs, COP 24 and 25. How do you think that we're setting up for this discussion? Do you have any hope for a kind of a global UN governed international carbon market? Yeah, I mean, the Article 6 negotiations have blighted previous COPs and you know, it would, it would have been nice if you and I were talking today having resolved Article 6. And I don't know whether we'll be able to resolve that. I'm certain it will be on the table for COP this year. But I, th- I think for me, this is one of the key tests, actually, of the UK diplomacy. I mean, I very much hope that Article 6 is resolved. Um, there's plenty of ways in which we can do that. But if it isn't, I think the question is, does the UK accept that um, it is this diplomatic red line? Does it, is, it, is it a blocker? I think it's, it, one of the interesting things about being the presidency in the presidency of the COP is that a strong president defines the narrative for the discussions, just as the French did back in 2015. So it's only a a red line issue if the UK allows it to be so. And I I mean, as much as I very much hope that it is resolved, if it proves to continue to be different, uh, to be difficult rather, um, then I think that the job here is to move the discussion onto onto other issues so so that the process itself isn't held up. So I think it can happen. I think absolutely it would be great if, if Article 6 could be resolved. And indeed, I think it will need to be resolved and uh, so that we don't have issues of double counting, especially. But it's only a problem if the UK makes it so. So, so what would you say, what would you judge the success, the effectiveness of COP26 on in terms of issues? I think ultimately it has to be judged on on the temperature goals. Hmm. So I think, I mean, we need to be talking about credible strategies to not just bring emissions down, but ultimately to bring the temperature outcomes down. So I think that is the, the, the basic uh, premise of, you know, the, the success of the COP risks and um, on, on the success or otherwise of achieving that. But beneath that, I've, what I hope is that we get into um, the, the kind of the more meaningful strategies to deliver those those um, temperature goals or emissions reductions. That and by that I mean more than just commitments to uh, emissions reductions. So of course we will need the twenty thirty commitments to come into view. Of course we will need net zero goals by mid century to be enshrined, preferably in law around the world. But it's actually the it's the, it's the things that drive those what we call emissions wedges that that really matter. There's kind of six or seven really important transitions that need to take place throughout the world. They are more important than any national commitment. So I mentioned one earlier, actually, the phase out of coal is the most obvious of those, but there's a set of other ones that go with that. You know, the decarbonisation of industry, the decarbonisation of heating and cooling for buildings, uh, the move to renewables, of course. Um, that There are a set of these issues that I think are much more interesting than the NDCs alone. And interestingly, this is one, again, back to my point about UK diplomacy, the UN process is, of course, driven by the national commitments, but the UK can choose to look through those national commitments and, and pull out, I think, what are a set of really interesting commitments that transcend them. And for me, the test of the COP is whether we have, a, we have, a, we have something now coming into view that looks like an achievable transition, not just one that, that you know, adds up in terms of the global calculator. So I, I think there's, again, lots to be optimistic about there because I feel that the economics are moving so quickly now towards... Uh, you know, a positive environment for decarbonization overall. That's interesting. That's actually quite helpful the way you've laid it out. Let's go back to 
Net zero. Look, clearly net zero has been a success. I think at last count, there's roughly around 5,000 companies, cities, regions, and institutions that have committed to net zero. And so it seems like the simplicity and reductiveness of of the net zero campaign has had a clear galvanizing effect across a different stakeholder group. I just had the same conversation with Elizabeth Morema, who is leading the uh, COP15 on the Convention on Biological Diversity. And, you know, in a sense, she kind of lamented the fact that biodiversity loss doesn't have such a clear, simple, kind of similar campaign to to net zero to galvanize all these different stakeholder groups. At the same time, though, net zero has become increasingly controversial. There are incredibly ambitious net zero plans. There are a number of plans that seem very underpowered, that seem very unambitious. And I think increasingly sort of hearing kind of calls around greenwashing. How do you sort of reconcile the commitment element, which in my mind has a lot of value? That's where we start and then make it progressively more rigorous over time with this kind of controversial flashpoint. Mm, this is, I mean, this is probably the most interesting topic of discussion for me at the moment, actually, that, that you know, this net zero thing, I mean, I'm, I'm very clear on it. I think it's been an incredibly helpful development that we are now talking about net zero. It has brought a set of parties on side on this transition that previously were not even talking about it. I mean, in the UK, we've had this, we, we used to have a target for an 80% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions by 2050. And um, that was the target that was set back in 2008 by the UK Parliament. It was in line with what we understood the science to be at the time. But as an 80% target, it had this kind of unfortunate problem that, that rather too many people thought they were in the 20%. So you had this, you had this issue, really, that, that it wasn't seen as an all-encompassing target, which I think net zero is. And, and in particular, it's brought on side uh, the commercial commitments that, that really are, I think, in helping and encouraging world leaders to make these more ambitious statements of, of intent, which is all good. But, I th- you know, we've got to acknowledge that net zero is net. You know, it's, it's, um, it's not absolute zero. Um, and I think when you start to get beneath that uh, issue of net zero, it's, it, there are, there's, a, there's less understanding, perhaps, of what, what's necessary to deliver it. So I think the first thing to say is that net zero is a meaningful thing at global level. It is the point, very simply, when we will stop increasing the temperature on the planet. So, you know, that is something that we all have to have in our mind. It is the implication of the Paris Agreement. It is also a scientific fact. I think it also has um, uh, a value at national level. So, uh, you know, these national targets to bring production emissions to net zero also mean something. I think where, it's, where it ceases to have such a clear value is when you get down to the level of individual corporate commitments possibly with the exception of the very largest multinationals or even kind of regional commitments to, to net zero beneath that kind of national level. And there's rather too many of them. And I think that's one of the problems for me is that what we need is um, corporate commitments, regional commitments that are, that are in line with the kind of national goals for net zero. So that means that they are well aligned with what needs to happen to drive the whole economy to net zero. They needn't be net zero themselves. So, you know, that, that kind of, idea that net zero is a binding thing at the level of any particular corporate is, I think, an unhelpful thing because it leads you down the route of thinking about offsets. Um, And what we really need to do is just kind of stand back a little and say, well, actually, in most sectors of the economy throughout the world, regardless of where we are, it is actually a requirement that we get to to near as damn it zero emissions. So in particular, in any, any of the energy sectors. But there are going to be continuing emissions in a handful of areas. 
very, uh, of course, they need to be minimised as well, but they must also eventually be offset by credible, meaningful, lasting offsets, which are difficult things to pull off. It's not just about planting a few trees and crossing your fingers. So for me, the net zero challenge is actually to to properly communicate what it is, what it means, but also to pull out from it the kind of meaningful strategies that will accelerate the, the, the world and perhaps at national level uh, to net zero, which I think is still a, a you know a useful concept that we should be talking about, partly because of its scientific merit, but also because it has, I think, successfully brought people into the tent of wanting to commit to this transition. Hmm. The offsets element is increasingly a controversial kind of topic within the investor community. I think there's sort of a, a general adoption to say that asset managers, asset owners won't use offsets. I think where I really kind of struggle with is getting kind of the, the opposite signals from policymakers. Another podcast that I had with the Commodities Futures Trading Commission in the U.S. indicated they want to help develop one of the largest offsets markets in the U.S. I got the sense through the Convention of Biological Diversity if they could do the same thing as well. I mean, obviously, China with just formally launching its own carbon markets, you know, just it feels like there's this move towards at least over the next 10 years trying to provide a higher quality type of offset, you know, not just avoidance, but carbon removal. The scarcity of that is such that I think we've got this sort of transition period where we've just got to be pragmatic. Do you agree? Yeah, I do agree, actually. I think that's a very good summary of, of what needs to happen. I mean, it, it, we are not dogmatic about it in our analysis and we're our analysis UK level of course so at UK level we see an important role for offsets uh, in the short term and in the long term but in, really important it changes it changes over time so as we get more and more comfortable with the strategies for achieving actual decarbonisation um, we should be using offsets less and less and restricting their use for those things over time that we have less of an understanding about how to decarbonize so that by the time you get to the kind of 2040s thereabouts, you really are using um, high quality offsets. And I'll come back to what that means uh, in really only a couple of areas, the two Fs mainly. So the, the flying and farming are the, are the areas where we, where we we see a real need to, to, to use offsets. And for one of those, for flying, um, we think we should be applying, you know, a, a higher standard, I suppose, of offset. So, you know, kind of a, a, an engineered removal from the atmosphere by whatever means, so that we are actually removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and storing it permanently, probably under the sea in the UK, where we used to have oil and gas reserves. So, it's, so you know, that that is a, an expensive process that 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 means that you know there should be a direct link between you know the the, the cause of those emissions and the, and the and the and the offset itself i guess i'm just wondering to what degree is iata comfortable with that view i think it's there's always been some sort of frustration that they've kind of gone the course of self regulation and less ambition yeah and i think i mean i think that's a legitimate view as well i mean the the, the kind of the, it's i my role is to point out the technical pathways and to say Look, I can see a way to do this, but I think there's the kind of political reality of achieving that, and then the kind of concerns that go with that are, are a factor too. And I'm not blind to those things. So, I mean, I, I think the, the important thing to say is that offsets clearly have an important role. Uh, their governance is another part of that, and we've advised on that too to say that um, uh, that the governance of those offsets is is almost as important as understanding what the kind of meaningful uh, strategies are that underpin them. But when it comes to you know international air travel. Um, uh, and, and, you know, and, and I would add shipping into that as well. 
you've got a situation where, to my mind, you've got a set of actors at the moment who are ducking their responsibilities because they're not captured easily by the national targets under the UN framework. So, so, so it's important for me uh, in my work to point that out to the UK administration and to make the point that the, in the UK, for example, we have just won the argument that the national targets must count international aviation and shipping emissions. And the reason that we gave that advice, and we have consistently done so until finally this year, the UK government accepted that advice, is that um, it will it will force the right actions from policymakers. So by properly counting those emissions that, that we are responsible for internationally when it comes to flying and, and shipping, uh, we're going to drive policies more actively that uh, that cut those emissions where we have the capacity to do that. So, uh, you know, again, that 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 plays into the emissions story it plays into the um uh, the um offset story i beg your pardon um uh, but you know there's the, uh, it, more importantly it's the uk modeling what the rest of the world needs to do as well which i think is a really important part of climate leadership i want to stay on this net zero issue just a little bit longer how do you reconcile the idea that net zero targets need to be pulled forward our interest is in having more ambitious you know near-term net zero targets versus the 2050 and yet, I think the committee's findings is that government investment in most areas, not all, looks increasingly back-end loaded. Why do you think, from a government perspective, why is there a general reluctance to recognize that more front-end loaded investment means greater cost savings and, and benefits, maybe healthcare, employment, etc.? Well, I mean, there's an fairly obvious answer to that, which is that governments are never keen to incur costs in the short mm. term if the benefits come later. <laughs> I mean, sure. I think it's one of the really kind of interesting um, and I think one of the great advantages of having a, a UK Climate Change Act is that it has that, the need to counter that enshrined in law. So you have in the UK a piece of climate legislation that that recognises something must be done over several decades um, but it equally recognises that governments have a more short-term outlook and therefore need to be made to stick to the course. So, you know, you have a you have this kind of interim targets and you have a, a body, the Climate Change Committee, my organisation, advising on what the targets are and also marking the homework of the government on whether they're meeting them. So I think that that idea is kind of enshrined, I suppose, in, in UK law at least. Um, but the general reluctance to do it is 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 partly political, partly, I would say, also a kind of failure of vision because the experience um, is that when policy is applied, when government ambition is raised, when uh, when it is clear that the government is fully committed to achieving something, that you get those benefits much more quickly than, um, than even the conventional economics might suggest. So the most obvious example of that is what's happened in the UK over the last decade on, on renewable electricity, where you've seen... Uh, what seemed to be a very expensive strategy of moving towards uh, renewables uh, and increasing them in the electricity mix in the UK has rapidly come down in price as big corporate commitments especially have come in behind that. And um, I have no reason to think that that would not happen in other areas. So I think the point about this is that the, the government in the UK, the governments around the U around the world, need to, I think, learn from the experience uh, of, of where, you know, where policy is applied, you get these learn, you get learning by doing, you get the, the you get the, the you know, the, the cost falling, and you get greater and greater benefits as as those things snowball. And, and that kind of general view is becoming more accepted, I suppose, but is still too slow uh, in terms of its, the way it feeds through into the policy process. So it's our job to point that out. And, you know, that overall view 
that this is a largely investment challenge. Um, to decarbonise an economy like the UK, it is mainly a capital investment challenge overall. It's about replacing all the capital assets in the economy. That means, I'm afraid, that at some stage the government is going to have to have to, have to grasp the, the challenge properly outside of the things that it's already doing. Uh, notably, it's already doing well in electricity generation, but it needs to now move into the other areas like industry decarb, like transport decarbonisation, like especially, I mean, really tough, tough challenge in the UK, decarbonisation of buildings. These are big investment challenges. Some of them are quite expensive, and the sooner we act on them, the, the greater the benefit in the long run. The Climate Change Committee is a, a welcome independent check on government progress towards net zero and adaptation, as you said, could be in the form of checking the government's homework. It seems to me, though, that the committee's work is increasingly starting to serve another purpose, which is to provide a factual counterpoint to, let's call it the boosterism and even hyperbolic rhetoric of the government. And I'm wondering if you can pull back the curtain on what that exchange is like between the committee and, and the government. Well, that's a great question. I mean, I, I think you're right as well. I think the kind of implicit in your question is something that I, I, I do believe. I mean, the, the record in the UK is a good one. When you look at the emissions that we produce at home, um, we've done better than any G7 country, probably less than the G20 on that, on that, on that record alone. Uh, and we've been growing the economy whilst cutting emissions. Now, it turns out that ministers quite like to... Um, uh, quite like to, to use that fact in their public rhetoric. But recently we've been uh, moving away from the congratulatory stuff into being much harder on them, I think, on their, on their willingness to go you know, the ne the next, to the next stage, what needs to be done over the next decade, which is where the real kind of uh, failings lie, I think, that we're not seeing that step up that we will need to see so that we get to the point by 2030 when we're ready, by and large, to stop the sale of fossil fuel technologies in this country. So we've been trying to point out to the future rather than looking back. Uh, ministers, um, politicians tend to want to um, crow a bit about previous achievements. And, um, and I'm a bit bored of hearing it, actually. So I think that the, the, the kind of role for us now in this next stage as the Climate Change Committee in the UK is to be more difficult until we see that progress. And to be that um, you know, kind of voice of, 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 of factual accuracy and reason on it. And um, that means that the exchanges that we have between um, behind the scenes, the UK government and ourselves can often be a bit testy, can often be difficult. Um, I, I, so far, we haven't had a, a major falling out. Um, we definitely have differences, differences of opinion about progress and where, where that action needs to happen. But I think there's a respect from the UK government side about what we say and the factual accuracy of it and the basis of it, um, which ultimately leads to, you know, kind of a, a, an understanding at least about why the rhetoric has changed. What's interesting is that it's a two-way process. Um, we, we offer our advice on how we feel the UK should decarbonise across the whole economy, across every sector. But, it, but the Climate Change Act is very clear that it's the responsibility of the government to make the plan. Uh, for how to actually achieve it in practice. And that means that there is a scope to differ from what we say, of course. So we're not a regulator and what we say doesn't go. Uh, it's down to the elected representatives to decide what policies they want to put in place. And then we have to respond to that too. So I'll just give you one example of that. We, we're actually quite, uh, we're quite optimistic about the potential for behaviour change in the economy to, to, to cut emissions. So think about things that are often politically quite difficult like changing, changing diet or flying less. 
Um, it seems that the present government in the UK is less keen on those things. And, uh, you know, there's room for that. So if, if, if their strategy, which we are due to see for decarbonising the economy and achieving net zero, we should see that in the next few weeks. If that strategy has less behaviour change in it than our modelling, then we are going to have to respond to that. So we'll have to accept that that is the government's outlook and, and look harder at what other other things can be done. And I think that sort of um, the, the to and fro of that, the kind of the pushing and the pulling is actually a really, really good part of the UK model overall. If we were dogmatic and stuck in our own assessments and didn't move from them, then it wouldn't feel uh, it wouldn't feel very democratic, actually, as, a, as, a, as an overall system of governance. I wanted to touch on this. Well, I wanted to touch on your efforts um, at working to dispel the notion that net zero is in some ways prohibitively expensive. I think you've talked about it being less than 1% of GDP per annum. And, and I'm wondering, how has the pandemic sensitized or desensitized the debate around public investment in climate action in the UK? On one hand, the pandemic is absolute clear proof of the enormous economic cost that systemic shocks like climate change represent. On the other hand, there's a clear pullback on fiscal spending following the significant support, almost 300 billion sterling of uh, COVID-related support. So how do you see the urgency of climate-related investment coexisting with the likelihood of fiscal austerity measures? Gosh, I mean, that's that is the that, that's the, the question of the age, isn't it? <laughs> it is. <laughs> I maybe just break it down if I can. So maybe so we talked in your question. You asked about the cost of this thing, and we have uh, in the last three years. I've been in this role for nearly four years now, and most of the time I've been in this role in the UK Climate Change Committee, we have been working hard at the economics of the transition to net zero. And a few things to say about it. Firstly, it does involve as I mentioned earlier, a lot of capital investment. You know, you're you're investing a lot as an economy uh, to decarbonize, and, and and what that really means is that you are you are you are buying and and replacing capital assets uh, extensively across the economy. So all the things that we use today that cause the emissions directly by burning fossil fuels, cars. Uh, the, uh, the, the the boilers that we use to heat buildings, the plant and machinery that, that use fossil fuels um, in the production process. All of those things we are replacing. And the um, investment challenge is, is very significant. I'm not going to dismiss it. We're adding about an eighth to the total capital expenditure that would normally happen pre-pandemic, that would normally happen in the economy as a whole. Most of that investment in the UK, it's about £50 billion sterling a year extra investment that we're doing. You can you could multiply that by ten to get to kind of similar figure for the US. So it gives you a sense of just the size of the of the overall commitment that a major economy like the UK would be making if it were to achieve net zero. That is a major major change in in the uh, in the economy overall, uh, and it delivers us a, a, a effectively a, a whole turnover of the capital stock of the economy, and it's expensive. There's no doubt about that. But what's interesting is not only does that reduce emissions it has a set of other impacts as well which are really really interesting story uh, stories kind of come in so it turns out that replacing all those capital assets with zero carbon versions uh is a is a very interesting it's a very sensible thing to do on a whole host of grounds not just climate change because those assets typically are much much more efficient in the way that they use fuel the fuel for it is mostly in our assessment at least electricity and that electricity is progressively decarbonizing through uh, renewables, which become cheaper and cheaper over time. So 
using uh, changing those capital assets from high carbon to zero carbon means that you have a much more efficient capital stock using quite a cheap energy source, progressively getting cheaper over time. And of course, you're not spending on fossil fuels and you are removing yourself uh, to a large degree from some of the global problems of using those fossil fuels and importing them. We are an economy that imports most of our fossil fuels now in the UK. So that has a benefit too. And there's a set of other benefits that go with that, which we haven't even tried to factor in, like the health benefits and, um, and the benefits to the environment more generally. So, you know, that is overall this major investment requirement set off by these falling costs uh, of using those, those, cap those capital assets uh, means that you get to a, an, an aggregate position that is now, I think, very cheap. So we, you know, we can look at that and make an assessment of it in terms of its proportion of GDP, and it's less than 1% of GDP every year between now and 2050. So I think that's worth it in terms of uh, arresting our, our, um, our, our contribution to the problem of climate change in the UK. But it's interesting, you asked a question about what impact COVID has had. And the important thing to say is that although that investment challenge is major, not all of it is public investment. In fact, the vast majority of it is, pri is private investment. So it's individuals and corporates making those investments. And I think the, the challenge for the government is that they need to now put a policy framework around this. Are they going to do it, for example, by doing the kind of uh, COVID-related investment and spending that's happened over the last 18 months? So lots and lots of publicly uh, pump-primed public investments. Or are they going to do it through a different means? Uh, a bit of cajoling uh, and a bit of hard regulation, possibly some use of the tax system. And I suspect it's in, it's in the latter camp, actually, that the government is presently designing its, its strategy. And, and, you know, there's many different ways to skin this particular cat. Uh, and um, I, I'm not too worried, really, about how we do it, as long as we get the investment happening. And for me, the kind of final point to say on this is that it's not just us now recognising the logic of all that. So, yes, there is a need to do this for the climate. But there's also a, a, a broader recognition, certainly in the UK, that if we don't act on this, then the, the impact of climate change itself will dwarf that kind of investment cost. And crucially, and this is the real killer argument, that acting early on this is also cheaper in the long run. So by getting ahead of this, you bring the cost down in the long run. And that, of course, is very, very important to the overall cost of the economy and the success of our, our competitiveness in the future. It's an incredibly cogent argument you just made. I think that's why I have so many problems sort of reading through the committee's 2021 progress report to Parliament and sort of effectively, which was a pretty stinging appraisal of the lack of progress on cutting emissions to net zero and adapting to climate risks facing the UK. And I'm just between that argument and sort of doing that homework for the short term, where is the UK kind of coming up short? Why is progress still so narrowly focused? I mean, largely decarbonizing electrification. Yeah, I mean, it narrowly focused is a really good way of summarising where we are. So we're, we are doing some good things in the UK and worth saying that many of those things don't happen in other countries. So, you know, I suppose we should we should we should think think about that and be, be happy it's happening. But it's not enough. So it's really important to say that, it, that, that we're also seeing the impacts of not uh, tackling the challenges in other areas beyond the decarbonisation of the power sector in this country. And actually, you can see that in the path that we drew for the government in terms of where we feel UK emissions should head over the next 30 years, you can imagine it looks a bit like an inverted S if you look at the overall emissions shape of the curve. And the first part of that S is quite a shallow reduction in emissions over the course of the next five to 10 years or so. And the reason it's shallow is because we've run out of road on 
cutting emissions in the power sector. We're, we, we will, in 2024, close the last coal-fired power plant in the UK. And actually, the progress now needs to be made outside of the power sector, and we haven't been doing enough to scale up the supply chains, to put the policies in place, to bring down the cost, to get the you know the, 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 the get prepped for the rapid reductions in emissions that are necessary. So you get this kind of shallow impact uh, over the course of the next few years, and then and then emissions really start to come down over the 2030s, and that I think reflects the overall policy challenge uh, that faces the government. And we were pretty uh, stinging in our criticism that the government has not yet put the policies in place to, to deliver that kind of outcome. And of course, the, every month that passes is a, a wasted month. It means, makes it harder to make that progress later. So uh, we were quite clear that we wanted to, to make that statement to the UK government. But we are equally clear that there is scope to repair that, that you know, in the course of the next few months, especially as the UK prepares for COP26, that there is scope to bring together uh, the kind of policy proposals and strategies that we need in every sector of the economy to cut emissions, but also to adapt to the change in the climate that's, that's I'm afraid, baked in now. And I really hope that they take that window. And I would be the first in line to offer the, uh, the congratulations if, uh, if that strategy comes into, into the kind of space that it needs to. I think it's really important that you have in the Climate Change Committee someone who's willing to offer that kind of criticism at the key moments, but also someone who's willing to... Um, uh, willing to, to say the positive things when the strategies come through. Hmm. Final question. Um, what are your expectations for the upcoming Treasury's net zero review? You know, it seems like following the committee's June report, I guess I'm wondering how the Treasury's review will manage to hit what were at least once uh, quite high expectations, like reforming price signals, raising offsetting revenues, um, determining how decarbonization is funded and costs allocated. Well, this is the probably most uncertain bit of the architecture in the UK at the moment. So it's very easy for someone in my position to say we need policies across the economy to drive decarbonisation. It's much harder to actually design them. And the hardest to design are probably the fiscal policies that, that will guide us there. So back to your, your question earlier about the, the overall cost of this, the, the big challenge about how you distribute the, you know, the, the investment challenge between private and public investment. There's also a big challenge about how you give incentives to millions of people to change what that present they do and, and move towards the, the zero carbon um, uh, assets and technologies that we know will guide us to net zero. So that is overall an enormous challenge. Now, what's interesting for me is that the Treasury in the UK has not said very much at all about this. In fact, it hadn't really ever Ever looked at this challenge uh, in the in the in the whole time that we've had the climate change act since two thousand and eight, and that's odd, because the UK Treasury was uh, the institution that inspired the Stern review into the economics of climate change. So at one stage, the Stern review was the UK Treasury production, and that of course shaped the global discussion on on the need for tackling climate change and the economics of that overall. So I feel that there is a space now for. The Treasury to come back in to look at the fundamental economics of this transition as, the, as it pertains to the UK. And if it does that, what I hope they will do is look at not the overall challenge of the cost itself. If, I hope they accept the argument that overall the cost is becoming smaller and smaller in that aggregate sense, that actually the challenge is how you spread those costs that do exist and are real in a fair way across the economy and also spread the benefits. And that, for me, is the critical test of whether the Treasury has done this net zero review that they promised properly, because they're going to need to look at the challenge of, of fairness 
So spreading um, what are real costs in some difficult sectors, notably the costs of decarbonising buildings in this country and the decarbonisation of industry in this country. So just think about that. That's homes and jobs, you know, big, big challenges there. But also meet, helping to meet that cost by capturing some of the benefit from what we see as now cost-saving parts of the transition, which include the transition on surface transport. We reckon that will now save the economy money as we move towards electric vehicles because they're more efficient, the fuel for them is cheaper. So, you know, that kind of idea of mixing those two things together in a fair way is one, is one element of it. And then the other aspect of this is the fiscal policies themselves and what they look like. And in the UK, the Treasury has 28 billion reasons to worry about fuel duty revenues, if I'm right about that transition to electric cars. And interestingly, that transition to electric cars, which will cause fuel duty revenues to dwindle for the Chancellor, is being prompted by the Prime Minister himself by naming the 2030 date that we will stop selling petrol and diesel cars in this country. So there's lots of reasons to think that, for, for, apart from anything else, they're going to have to think properly about fiscal tools for the first time because of the transport transition, because otherwise we'll be in a pickle. So I think, you know, for the first time, we're now going to have to potentially a real discussion about carbon pricing, a real discussion about the incentives for consumers to move away from fossil fuels for things like domestic heat, uh, and a real need to think about how can we capture those benefits in some areas and, and, and spread them into the, uh, the challenge of meeting the costs in others. And unless the Treasury is fully behind this, it's not going to, it's not going to work as a transition. We won't have a, a credible policy programme. Well, that's fascinating. <laughs> Excellent. Look, so it's been fascinating to discuss how to think about expectations going into COP26, what the Climate Change Committee is doing to advise the UK government on its climate action and adaptation strategy, and why it's vital we front-end load climate investment in order to bridge rhetoric with the reality of climate change. So I'd really like to thank you for your time and insights. I'm Jason Mitchell, co-head of Responsible Investment at Man Group, here today with Chris Stark, Chief Executive of the Climate Change Committee. Many thanks for joining us on A Sustainable Future, and I hope you'll join us on our next podcast episode. Thanks so much, Chris. Thanks, Jason. I'm Jason Mitchell. Thanks for joining us. Special thanks to our guests and, of course, everyone that helped produce this show. To check out more episodes of this podcast, please visit us at man.com forward slash ri-podcast or look for us on itunes soundcloud spotify and podbean and last this podcast is an open educational resource it's meant to be shared and if you enjoy it please take a second to review it on itunes i'm also really interested in your views ideas and opinions so feel free to drop me a line at jason.mitchell at man.com